first reading is from Psalm, Psalms, the uh, entire Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your ears as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For four years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And our second scripture is from Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this gathering together this morning and your presence with us. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to your word this morning, your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the contemporary church over the last few decades has kind of allowed our culture, our world, to set the agenda for worship. It seems to want to tell us how we should do it, what should be preached, and even wants to tell us what God is like. And it's not necessarily biblical. And this is, the, the church buys into this because we feel like this is so we can better reach people out in the world. Well, I don't have a problem with that, per se, But we have to remember that the God to whom we are introducing them has made it very clear who he is, what he is like, and how he wants to be worshipped. So we're going to look at these two passages. These are not the only passages on worship, of course, but we're going to look at these to find out what it means to worship God his way and what he's made known to us about worship. Now, over the centuries, Psalm 95 has often been used as a call to worship. It was probably written for the temple worship and very likely associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of three feasts that God commanded the Israelites to observe. Passover, Pentecost, and this one. It was a remembrance or commemoration of the 40 years the Israelites spent in the wilderness 
where they were in tents and uh, booths or tabernacles. Okay, and so what the way the Israelites would would uh, commemorate this is by for a week they would lit, build booths either outside on their property or up on the roof, which is usually flat, and and live in them for a week. Okay, and at the end of the week they'd have a big temple worship time. Many think that this. This uh, psalm, the first part of the psalm, was a processional as the congregation gathered for worship. But Psalm 95 answers three important questions for us. What is worship? Why should we worship? And how we should worship? Worship is a, is a discipline. And it's not the discipline in the sense that we usually use it today. Christian disciplines, there are several of them. I think you've, you've heard a lot about them. Worship is one. Prayer, Bible study, giving, fasting. These are all disciplines. And Christian disciplines are basically a continuous practice, something that we do over and over that helps to shape our character and shape who we are. So we need a practice that engages all of who we are, mind, body, and emotions. So this psalm describes what worship is. And I, I love this particular quote. You've seen, many of you have seen this before. William Temple, who was the 20th century Archbishop of York and Archbishop of Canterbury, gave this very comprehensive definition of worship. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Sometime I would love to do a sermon just on that quote and dig into each of those phrases. But we probably want to get home for dinner tonight, so I'm not going to do that today. Tim Keller, who's author and pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, or was, actually, if if you didn't know this, he passed away just this last May. But Keller describes worship as, quote, ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your entire being, that is your mind, body, and heart, as you do it. He describes worship as the act of assigning ultimate value to something. Now, Psalm 95 covers all those bases body, soul, and mind. Now, I hope you, well, if you didn't, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 95 again, okay? And keep it, keep it there, because we're going to be referring to these verses. So I want you to follow along and look at these verses as we talk about them, whatever, whatever um, version you have. If you're using the blue Bibles in the chairs, it starts on page 933 at the bottom. Verses 1 and 2 are about our emotions. Verses 6 and 7 talk about our will. And verse 8 to the end is about our minds. It's about our understanding, our thinking, our reasoning. The word worship that we use is an, comes from an old English word or phrase, worship. It's assumed that we worship something, 
The first two commandments have to do with worship, right? I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, shall not make any graven images or bow down to them. It's about who we worship. We worship that in which we find our meaning or our ultimate value. Is that God? Is it ourselves? Is it something else? What gives us worth? Is it our money, our talents, our popularity? Could be any number of things. But what do we worship? Whatever we give the ultimate value to is what will shape us, and we will worship that. It will shape our character, our actions. It will shape who we are. So back to the psalm. First two verses. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It exhorts us to come before the Lord with jubilance, with loud singing, shouting, thanksgiving, praising him. And loud singing and shouting is encouraged in a lot of the Psalms, in fact, even in other places in Scripture. And we even find, like in Jeremiah 31 12, where Jeremiah is describing the exiles coming back to Jerusalem from Babylon. He says, They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. It's the joyful cry of those who are delivered from exile. And we have been delivered from death to salvation, to eternal life. Now the psalmist goes on, verses 3 and 4. He tells us why. For... Because, therefore, the Lord is a great God, the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Whether it's the very heights of the creation, mountaintops, or the depths of the earth, God created it all. It all belongs to him. We belong to him. So now having established the what, who, and why, the writer moves on to the how. Verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down, or come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For, there's that word again, He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. This is different from those first few verses, which were boisterous and and loud. This describes more of an attitude, an attitude of humility as we come before God. Even if we're shouting boisterously, but we come with an attitude of humility. The Hebrew word for worship is shakha. And in Hebrew, that word means to prostrate oneself, to bow before, to humbly pray to, to reverence, to bow before a superior in surrender and submission. That's what verses 6 and 7 are talking about. He is our superior. He created us. And so we bow before him in surrender. We don't come to, to worship to get something out of church, although we certainly do benefit in many ways, and I'll get to that in a little while. But it's what we give to God. True worship 
means turning our lives over to him as our superior, our maker, our master. Don Williams, in his commentary on this, writes, quote, A service of worship, therefore, is a service of surrender. This reality, if expressed, will deliver us from much of the self-centered so-called worship of the modern church. The reason for submission is found in verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep, we are the flock. And Jesus gave it the ultimate expression when he said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He is our protector. And so we sing, like we just did, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. We acknowledge our position before God and commit our lives to him. This is a hymn that should not be sung lightly. It's very familiar. We sing it a lot. But think about the words. What are you singing to God? We should always think about what we are singing in these hymns. Now this psalm doesn't have a big joyful happy ending. We would want the psalm to end with some more encouragements to sing praises. But instead, it ends with a warning, even a threat. And that we have a change of speaker. It's not the worship leader anymore. Now it's God himself. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So you, you go down to verse 11, the last verse, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Oh, wow. Thank you, God. We just needed to hear that. But it's very appropriate, particularly if this was used during the Feast of Tabernacles. See, it's a warning from Israel's history. It says, do not harden your hearts. They're referring to some incidents while they were in the wilderness. They were complaining. First of all, they complained to Moses, Moses that they had no food. So God sends them manna and quail. Then they complain to Moses, they get to a place where there's no water. And they, again, they're almost violent when they, they come at Moses. Okay? Well, we have no water. Why'd you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? So God sends them water from a rock. Even though they had seen all these things, they'd seen all the, uh, so, so like it says in verse 10, um, no, verse 9. Where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. What did he do? He sent all those plagues in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He did all those things. And yet, they rebelled and didn't trust him. So finally, they get this close to the promised land. And Moses sends out 12 spies to check it out. They say, is this really a land flowing with milk and honey? Bring back some of the produce. Let's see it. And tell us what the people are like and what the cities look like so we can make plans. So the spies come back. And ten of them, all except Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, oh, the produce is great. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But the people there are like giants. And the, the cities are fortified with these huge walls. We could never conquer it. We're stuck. We can't go in. And so God is angry and frustrated with them. And they wait another 40 years till that whole generation, except Joshua and Caleb, dies off, including Moses. Well, that's another story. But 
they never get to go in to the promised land. Now, the writer of the Hebrews in the New Testament puts a lot of emphasis on this part of the psalm. Most of chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews are about verses 8 to the end of Psalm 95. He points out how the Israelites had to carry all their possessions. They were all burdened with all their possessions for all these years in the wilderness going to the promised land, and they needed the physical rest. But the Hebrew writers tells us, it warns us, don't miss our spiritual rest. That is salvation, eternal life, or worshiping other things as worthy, things that give us worth, being burdened down with other things, money, popularity, whatever it is, those things I mentioned before, you could maybe name your own, that, that give, we think give us our worth, instead of resting spiritually in Jesus Christ. So the psalmist says in verse 8, today, actually the end of verse 7, today, that is, while there is still time, while you are still alive, do not harden your hearts. That is, do not be disobedient or distrustful of God and lose his blessings like the Israelites did. Do not lose his spiritual blessings. Hardness of heart, distrust, and disobedience is what keeps us from surrendering. Surrendering to God because, and submitting to God because we maybe want to give in to something else. So what is the solution? What softens our hearts? Well, one thing, hearing the voice of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do we have a choice? Well, hearing isn't enough. We have to ask ourselves, how shall we hear We need to hear obediently. Now, if you don't understand that phrase, ask someone with small children. We need to hear with obedience, with faith. One of the prime acts of worship is to listen to God's voice. And the writer of Hebrews explains that as hearing with faith leads to obedience, and this is why the psalm ends the way it does is a warning not to fall into the same trap. So the continued practice or discipline of worship, privately or corporately, softens our hearts as we practice that over and over because it puts us in the proper place before God, that place of humility and submission before him. And we need to practice that. Well, I do, that's for sure. Now, I mentioned benefits. And there are some benefits of praise and worship. And something we may not think about, I didn't until I read this. C.S. Lewis, in his book Reflections on the Psalms, struggled with this concept of praise. He said this, when I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God, still more in the suggestion that he himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands, con- the man who demands continued assurance of his own value, in his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. And we despise still more 
the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity to gratify that demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms, he says, were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise him. And why, incidentally, did praising God so often consist in telling other people to praise him? It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. Of course, we know that God is worthy and deserving of that. But Lewis goes on. He said, the most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. He goes on to list a few of his day. He talks about lovers praising each other, praising poetry, praising authors, actors. Today we might say something like, did you see that magnificent sunset? That's a praise. Or how about that game-winning home run last night? Or to bring it up to really contemporary, how about that Soche Hotani, what he did in the doubleheader last week? Wasn't that movie incredible? See, Lewis writes that we spontaneously praise whatever we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So now we turn to another aspect of worship. Singing and worship. Why not, right? The choir director is up here preaching. He's going to talk about singing, of course. But basically, we're turning a little bit from theory into the nuts and bolts. John Piper, who was the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist in Minnesota, writes this. The reason music and songs exist is that there are feelings that demand we do more than just describe reality or talk about it. Prose must give rise to poetry. Poetry must be extended to song, and song must give rise to music. He says, God is too great to be exalted only by preaching and discussion. And we have to remember that God created music and created human emotion. I'd like to read again for you that passage in Ephesians um, that didn't get on the screen. I think it was... I. I think we were in the wrong chapter. But um, Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul is talking about being filled with the Spirit here, but he is using several phrases that have to do with music. Singing for the Christian is to be an expression of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are commanded throughout Scripture to sing, and Paul here makes a few references to singing, but he also commands us to be filled with the Spirit. Now, we have to remember that in the culture to which Paul was writing, religious ceremonies were often highlighted by excessive drinking, and the result being that somehow by dulling your mind and losing your inhibitions, you'd be better able to have a religious experience. Paul says don't do that. That's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit instead. Now, in using that analogy, we might be tempted to think that being filled with the Spirit is is somehow similar to being drunk. Only good things happen instead of the bad things. For example, on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The apostles were all gathered together. The Holy Spirit came down on them, tongues of fire, and they began to speak in other languages. And they go out into the streets of Jerusalem, and they're talking in these other languages, and people can understand them. But some mocked them and said, oh, they're all drunk. They're filled with new wine. They didn't understand that. But many of them did. And they could hear the gospel being preached in their own language. So it is supernatural, but even though it is supernatural, being filled with the Spirit is not some out-of-control activity or a strange altered state of mind. We have to remember who is the Holy Spirit, first of all. He's the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And in Scripture, he's referred to sometimes as the breath of God. We often sing this hymn. We sing it up just about every year at Pentecost. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. See, those who are filled with the Spirit do not empty their minds. John Piper says their minds instead are filled with God's Word. Now, why does he say that? Well, for one thing, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. So he says to be filled with the Spirit is to be prayerfully reading and meditating on God's Word. Now, Paul's letter to the Colossians, which is similar to Ephesians, has a parallel passage in in 3.16. He says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Very similar passage, only instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, he says, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Let it take root. Let it grow. Let it be your controlling, um, what you want to have control you, your value, your worth. So as we saw in the William Temple quote, to worship is to feed the mind with the truth of God. And the truth of God is his word. Now I'd like to hit a little disclaimer here about singing. This does not mean that you get out of it by saying, I can't sing. And if I do, the people around me are going to be offended. 
It's not the beauty of the instrument. It's what's in the heart. God wants you to sing. He wants to hear you sing. He wants to hear, he wants us to hear everyone else sing. But also, this does not mean that if you aren't feeling the filling of the Holy Spirit, or you don't feel loving towards God or to each other, and you're not in the right mood, then don't bother coming. No. Things happen. We live in a fallen world. We can't be led only by our emotions. And we also have to remember that emotions are part of worshiping with our whole being. But that means all the emotions, not just the warm, fuzzy ones. So if your emotions are are that of feeling sadness or loss or guilt, bring those to God also, because that is also worship. And I'll give you a couple examples from Scripture. First of all, pretty obvious one. David and Bathsheba. Okay, most of you know that story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. She has a baby. And God is angry for what he's done because David tries to cover this up. And when it doesn't work, he has Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. So the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, the child that is born to Bathsheba is going to die. So the, the child immediately gets sick. David spends, I think it's a week, just desperately praying, fasting, praying to God for mercy that he would heal the boy. But at the end of the week, the child dies. And at the end of that week, when, when David finds out, he says he gets up, changes his clothes, washes himself, and he worships. And I'll bet he didn't go out and say, everyone sing, come and sing joyfully to the Lord. I don't think so. And then there's Job. We heard about Job from Pastor Greg a few weeks ago. In one day, he lost everything. All of his children, his sons, his daughters, his possessions, his herds, his flocks. And at the end of the day, it says, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. I wonder what that looked like. Now, is Paul saying, are we singing to God, or are we singing to one another, as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Well, I think the answer is yes. And John Piper kind of said that. He said, it is not two different kinds of singing, but one. They go together. We sing to God even as we are singing to one another because we are in the presence of God. I mean, I might say to Linda, isn't that a magnificent sunset? Well, essentially, I'm praising the sunset, but I'm not talking to the sunset, am I? But the praise is out there. Some of the psalms are sung directly to God, and some are sung in the third person. And sometimes it happens in the same song. Sometimes you read a psalm and you find out, you look at it and go, does this guy remember who he's talking to? For example, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He's talking in third person about God, but then he goes to verse 8. Zion hears and rejoices. And the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And then the very next verse, he says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. 
for he guards the life of his faithful ones. So he's going back and forth. He's talking about God and praising God, then he's talking directly to God, and then he's praising God to others. The first two hymns we sang this morning were both different in that respect. All creatures of our God and King is about God. Glorify thy name, Father, we love you. We're talking directly to God. The song Holy Water is directed to God. It expresses our humility before him, our dependence on him. It is about God in the presence of God. God is listening, whatever it is we're singing. And another disclaimer, we are not commanded always to sing to each other all at once. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, Paul is really addressing order in worship in this passage, in the context here. But I believe biblically, well, you see, there is a place for what has come to be called special music. And that's usually a choir or a bell choir or a soloist. It could be an instrumental solo. Some scholars believe that when Paul uses the word spiritual songs, he's referring to odes. And odes in those days were a little more elaborate piece of music. It took some training to be able to sing them. And so it may have been done by a soloist or a small group. But listening to these musical offerings is not meant to be passive. We are called to listen attentively to what is being sung and join in agreement. In other words, a mental or emotional amen to what is being sung or played. This is why we usually have the words of a solo or the choir piece on the screen. Or a biblical text on the screen during the prelude or during the bell choir anthem, where you don't really get to hear the words. So as we follow, we let the music interpret the words, perhaps in a deeper way that connects with us emotionally, as the singer or the choir is sharing the word of God with us. I have to say that I feel like when when Dave Anderson sings a solo, that he's sharing part of his testimony with us. Do you agree? When Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota was formed, John Piper and the leaders of the congregation asked themselves, what did they want their defining sound to be? What would define them as the sound of that congregation that people would take away or people would would, uh, recognize them for? Would it be the organ, the choir, the worship team, band, an orchestra? What would it be? And they decided that the defining sound of their congregation would be the congregation singing. It didn't matter what the accompaniment was or if there was no accompaniment at all. The singing was the sound that mattered. What God commands of us in singing is that it comes from the heart. It matters that God hears our voices, and it matters that we hear one another's voices. So, as we've heard all this, some questions we could ask ourselves. First of all, how do we prepare to come into worship as the body of Christ? So what is our attitude as we come in on Sunday mornings? What is our expectation? 
How do we greet one another? It doesn't say <laughs> Psalms, hymns, and spiritual. Good morning. How are you? It doesn't necessarily mean that. How do we use that time during the prelude? Is it just background for our conversations? Or do we meditate on the scripture or the words of the hymn that may be played? Do we prepare ourselves for the presence of God? And are we, second question, are we aware of the presence of God in our worship? We have a call to worship every Sunday. News flash. We don't do the call to worship to let God know, hey, we're ready to start now, you can show up. He's already here. We have come into his presence. He's invited us to come into his presence. He is here. As the old song is say, he is here, he is here, he is moving among us. We need to pray that. And another question, how do we receive the message, the reading of the word, or the special music? Are we passive? Is it our entertainment? Are we engaged in the message that is being spoken or sung? And finally, at what level do we participate in the congregational singing? Are we, I dare you to make me sing, or is the singing the defining sound of our congregation that God hears, that each of us hears? We hear each other singing and praising and worshiping and proclaiming God's word to each other as we're singing to God. Or do we just let the leaders on the platform do it, whichever style worship we attend? I invite you to think of worship as John Piper said, ascribing ultimate value to an object or person that's God and engaging your entire being, mind, heart, and body as you do it. Amen.